Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. It's January, and another anniversary of Roe versus Wade is upon us. Today I'm going to be talking about a family life strategy for the pro-life movement in the decade of the 2020s. There are a number of very positive pro-life initiatives, and what I'm going to be suggesting is not to supplant those, but I do feel the family life family life strategy should lead the way. I almost um, caught myself, almost said family life center, because the Family Life Center, the home of these broadcasts for faith and family, is built directly upon this family life strategy. But to recognize just some other pro-life initiatives, the crisis pregnancy centers do such a great job, and particularly those who are using the latest ultrasound to show pictures of the unborn baby to mothers. It's so smart, but there's maternity homes, there's prayer, sidewalk counseling, legislative efforts, education. But what I'm going to be advocating is a family life strategy to bring an end to abortion in the 2020s. And if we can make this strategy kind of a a lead strategy, I think we have some hope. And here's why. I first like to illustrate it. Do you ever go to uh, the arcades with your kids? Great thing about having kids, it gives you an excuse to go to the arcade. And there's the gopher game, one of my favorites. You kind of have this uh, padded mallet, and then you have you know, up to a dozen holes in front of you, and you never know which hole a gopher is going to come up, and you have to smack it with the mallet. Well, you think you're really making success. You smack one gopher, and boom, another one pops up over here. So you smack that one, another one pops up in another location. And you know, it seems that there's a lot of gophers regarding the fact of abortion in our country. There's so many ways we seek to uh, push it down back in the hole, so to speak. A a number of those initiatives I just mentioned are ways to kind of whack abortion today to try to explain why this is happening, and it's this. The sexual revolution is the root of the abortion holocaust. It's why it keeps popping up even though we (laughs) tend to use all of these efforts to get rid of it, it keeps popping back up in our society. And abortion, if the sexual revolution is the root of this, then abortion will end only after the sexual revolution is overturned. And I'm not talking about every single person, but I'm talking about the cultural wave be move in a positive direction And if we don't do that, if the sexual revolution stands, we'll be playing whack-a-mole. Who knows how many more anniversaries of Roe versus Wade? And to give you a rock-solid peek at this, we need to go way back in the Bible for 3,500 years. You're going to say, no, what does that have to do with today? What does that have to do with the decade of the 2020s? Just stay with me here. Way back in the book of Numbers, when the children of Israel had come out of Egypt, they came 
into the territory of the Moabites, who were enemies of the people of God, very corrupt people, and they wanted to defeat the Israelites and realize that God was on their side. And therefore, they came up with the idea, Balak, the king of Moab, came up with the idea of hiring a prophet by the name of Balaam, and they hired Balaam to curse the people of Israel. Now, Balaam was very reluctant to go. He says, look, I I can't go. I can't curse those whom God has blessed. And he just kept pressuring him. So he finally came, and several times he he opened his mouth, and of course, the king of Moab wanted him to curse the Israelites. He couldn't. Every time he opened his mouth, he blessed the Israelites. He, ah, maybe it's you're in the wrong place. So he moved to another hill and overlooking all the children of Israel. Now curse them, and out came blessing. Well, this is going on for several chapters in Numbers, like Numbers chapter 22 and 23, 24. But in Numbers chapter 25, the Israelites are defeated. The people who couldn't be defeated because God was on their side were defeated. And we read this. The people of Israel began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. This was the ancient world sexual revolution. In other words, these people couldn't be defeated militarily. Uh, The king of Moab was smarter than trying to do that, and he realized there's some type of spiritual opposition, and so he hired Balaam to curse him, and that didn't work. But something was obviously working because the people of Israel began to play the harlot, the sexual revolution, with the daughters of Moab, and it says that a part of this, their hearts were changed because in doing this, these basically pagan rites, which combined sexual revolution with the worship of false gods, Israel started doing this, bowed down to their gods, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And we have to read forward actually six chapters in the book of Numbers till we get to chapter 31, and we find out what happened. Even though Balaam couldn't curse the children of Israel, he counseled the king of Moab how to defeat them. And it says, Behold, these caused the people of Israel by the counsel of Balaam to act treacherously against the Lord. And, of course, the curse of the Lord came upon his protected people. Now, Well, what does that have to do with today? What does that have to do with the decade of the 2020s? Okay, we're going to fast forward 1,500 years to the early church, and we're going to read a letter written by the first pope of the Catholic Church, St. Peter. It's now called 2 Peter in the New Testament. And here's what he says, starting in chapter 2 and verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. This is the first pope directly and explicitly warning Catholics that there is going to be false teachers in our midst. And St. Peter was writing for what was happening in the first century, and believe me, In the 21st century, nothing has changed. We have been warned by the first pope that this would happen. Now, 
It says these false teachers will follow their licentiousness. In other words, basically their thinking and their doctrine and their morality has been corrupted by their sexual immorality, their licentiousness. And St. Peter goes on to say, because of them, the way of truth will be reviled. Now, let me just insert a PS for today. There are false teachers in our midst who are advocating false teachings, who are living a licentious life, who have fallen into the sexual revolution and are causing the way of truth to be reviled. Don't panic over this. This was warned about by our first pope. And St. Peter goes on to say, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, they have followed the way of Balaam. In other words, 1,500 years separates the account in Numbers from what Peter was writing in the first century. But it was the same deal. Why would Satan and the enemies of God change a strategy that works so well, that works so consistently, and that can work over centuries to corrupt God's people? Then, St. Peter goes on, now the next chapter, chapter 3 of Second Peter's letter, the letter of Second Peter, says, now this is the second letter I have written you, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, first up, top of the list, you must understand this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own passions. And the last days, properly understood, are the, is the entire period we're living in between the first coming of Christ and when Jesus returns at the second coming of Christ. But if scoffers would come during the last days, whatever goes on in the last days will be intensified as we near the end of the period of the last days. And men and women, following their passions, reviling the truth, following licentiousness, falling headlong into the sexual revolution, are trying to corrupt the people of God. Now, not only Peter, but St. John, one of the apostles, wrote this message given by Jesus to the Catholic Church at Pergamum in Asia Minor in the first century comes straight out of the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and verse 14. Again, this church, by the way, this was a Catholic church. There weren't any other churches around at the time. It's just a Catholic church. And the Catholic church in Pergamum wasn't even 50 years old or maybe give and take a few years either way. And here's what Jesus says to this Catholic church. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice immorality. Here you have it again. It's the same ancient world strategy brought right in to the first century Catholic church. These are churches begun by St. Paul, ministered to by St. John, and then ruled over by St. Peter, and they're falling headlong into the same 
error. And the Balaam strategy, if you think, what has happened to the American culture? What is happening to the entire Western world? Well, it's the Balaam strategy has been extensively used throughout the 20th century. And now as we're in the 21st century, it's about to completely overturn Christian civilization. And it's the Balaam strategy, pure and simple. And here's how we respond. We respond by, first of all, recognizing what has been done, recognize that this attack takes place in the culture and in the church, okay? And if we want to restore the sanctity of life, we have to restore the sanctity of Christian marriage. God's commandments regarding sexual morality are not designed to somehow just rob people of sexual happiness and doing whatever they want to do or whatnot. His commands regarding sexual morality are to preserve Christian marriage. Without that, marriage isn't going to hold, so to speak, if it's ignored. If you have widespread sexual immorality, you are going to be hurting people by the millions with failed marriages. So the sanctity of marriage is the foundation for the sanctity of life. If these gophers kept popping up, attacking life, it's because fueling that underneath is the Balaam strategy corrupting the sanctity of marriage. So if we want to restore the sanctity of life, and we do all the initiatives, but if we really want to get to the root of what is going on behind the scenes, so to speak, we restore Christian marriage. And here's a couple of scriptures for you that shows that where the sanctity of marriage is lost, you'll also find the inevitable loss of the sanctity of life. One of the best places is in the letter of James, chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not kill. You see, these two commandments are linked. In Ezekiel 23, it says this, They have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. With their idols, they have committed adultery, and they have even offered up to them for food the sons whom they have borne to me. You see, child sacrifice and adultery go hand in hand. And simply trying to attack one of them without having this simultaneous strategy and, and a willingness to look beneath the surface and even recognize what is fueling this, it's going to go on and on and on. It has to be addressed. Now, getting to the root of the modern sexual revolution, the modern attack on the sanctity of marriage, is the use of artificial birth control by both Christians and non-Christians alike. It's the besetting sin against the sanctity of marriage in the 20th and 21st centuries. And for proof of this, I'd like to cite evidence from perhaps the most radical abortion provider in the modern world, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. You know, folks, it really pays to read the opposition. It really pays to heed the opposition. 
When Margaret Sanger wrote her book advocating birth control, she entitled it The Pivot of Civilization. If you want to turn civilization on its head, you have a sexual revolution and everything else will follow. And, you know, the divorce rate has followed contraception spread through the 20th century, and now it's just a given in the 21st century, and that's why the gopher keeps popping up through all the holes, and we can't seem to push him back down. But if you have a root of the sexual revolution in the modern world, it's when you separate marital love from life, and you end up with the death of love, of marriage, and the death of millions of innocent babies. Listen to Malcolm Muggeridge. Many of you may not know who he is, but if you're old enough to remember CBS News of Walter Cronkite, he was the voice of American news back when people watched the evening news. Malcolm Muggeridge was the Walter Cronkite of the BBC, and he had a real solid conversion experience that began when he interviewed Mother Teresa. Towards the end of his life, he became a Catholic, but this is what he wrote. As a non-Catholic, as an inspiring Christian, as someone who, as an old journalist, has watched this process of deterioration of our whole way of life, what I want to say is that in the encyclical, Humanae Vitae, that means human life and is teaching against birth control, the finger is pointed on the point that really matters. Namely, that through human procreation, the great creativity of men and women comes into play. And to interfere with this creativity, to seek to relate it merely to pleasure, is to go back into pre-Christian times and ultimately to destroy the civilization that Christianity has brought about. If there is one thing I feel absolutely certain about, it is that in the social histories in the future, that the dissolution of our way of life, our Christian way of life, and all that it has meant to the world relates directly to the matter that is raised in Humanae Vitae. So, if the pro-life movement wishes to ignore the sin of birth control in its ranks, and many uh, feeling that this will somehow help the pro-life movement just kind of just push this issue in the closet, uh, here we are, year after year after year after year, and we're not addressing the root of the sexual revolution that leads to the assault on innocent human life. So we don't want to be swatting gophers a decade from now. We want to have the wisdom and the courage to address the root cause of the desecration of marriage. And once we restore the sanctity of marriage, I'm talking about as a culture, start turning the wave. And it certainly can begin in our own midst, in our own families. Then the wave of culture begins to change. And then political efforts when you swat that gopher with legislative efforts, it actually has a lasting effect. Now, on the positive side, you need to recognize that a wise family life strategy may be able to defeat the sexual revolution at this point in history. You'd say, no, no, you don't understand, Steve. It's, it's hopeless. The sexual revolution is everywhere, and I admit it is. Uh, it has done its work. 
It has so pervaded our media, our university life and teaching and the practice and the cultural acceptance. Yeah, it's there. But guess what else happens? When you ignore what God says about sexual morality, which God intends to save marriage because of it, but when you ignore it, you have the heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak. Marriages don't seem to be holding together in the modern world. And that presents a wide open door. In other words, the sexual revolution and what it has done to the human heart and destroying love to such a significant degree in the modern world has opened a door of opportunity. You know, James Dobson, the founder of Focus on the Family, said that the family is the door to preach the gospel to America. James Dobson's father was an evangelist, and James Dobson at one point thought he should be an evangelist, and he became one, but not through um, preaching directly, so to speak, but taking the message of the family, it opens the human heart because I have found this in my own conversations. You meet some people that maybe haven't been to church except maybe in the last 10 years for a couple of weddings or something or a funeral, but that's it. They don't have any Christian leaning understanding or practice, but they want to know of what will keep a marriage together. There's an openness there. Now, do you know In the polls, if you do a polling in America, use the term pro-choice and you use the term pro-life, what comes out first? Well, I'll tell you, it's pro-choice. They've got a term that beats pro-life. Now, you don't hear this too much in pro-life circles, at least not as much as you should, but there's one word that trumps pro-choice, and that's the word family. It's the number one word in polling in the United States. That's why during election cycles, these guys who leave their families and ignore them for you know days and weeks on end all of a sudden want to have a family picture when they send you that color postcard of themselves as a candidate from dog catcher to president of the United States. They show family pictures because that's the number one word in the American lexicon. So there's, there's some real hope here. Um, now, I don't know if you're aware, but there's a real problem in young voters. Most people have figured that out, and it's not just socialism, but even young Republican voters who are not socialists, do you know what the number one predictor of a home being pro-life or pro-abortion? It's not watching a certain DVD or... or Uh, hearing some message or something like that. The number one predictor in the United States of a home being pro-life or pro-abortion is whether or not there's the presence of a child in that home. So what can we do as a church, for instance? Well, we can encourage and value children. You know, a lot of mothers are criticized for having more than one or two children in today's world. How about having regular prayer, not just once a year prayer, but regular prayer 
for pregnant mothers at the end of Mass. That would be a great public affirmation of life. And as life spreads, the pro-life movement spreads, uh, voters' minds are changed. So this is how we turn things around. Uh, St. John Paul II had more to say about family life, and it just so happened he also uh, hosted the first international pro-life summit. And while at that summit, I heard him talk about the way to bring the modern world back to God is not through uh, fancy literature and all these type of things. These are all good things, don't get me wrong, but the way to bring the modern world back to God is through the family. He said this in his letter to families, the history of mankind, the history of salvation passes by way of the family. The family is placed at the center of the great struggle between good and evil, between life and death, between love and all that is opposed to love. St. John Paul II in his letter to families. And he said this in his Gospel of Life, quote, the role of the family in building a culture of life is decisive and irreplaceable. I entitled this episode, The Family Life Strategy, but you really need to know that my family life strategy is 100% plagiarized from St. John Paul II. I got it straight from him. And I believe that God gave him a core indicator of a strategy. You see, it doesn't, doesn't seem to attract quite as much attention as political action or this type of action or that type of action, but the role of family in building a culture of life is decisive and irreplaceable. Let's remember that in the decade of the 2020s. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 268 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at familylifecenter.net. To order a CD copy of today's broadcast, order online at www.familylifecenter.net.